Hey listeners, it's Josh. Back in September of last year, I did an episode with Dr. Edna Hussey, the Reggio Emilia-inspired elementary school principal at Mid-Pacific Institute here in Hawaii. Mid-Pacific is a mid-sized independent school that strives to be a place of innovative and imaginative deeper learning. My episode with Edna was one of my favorites from last year, so I am re-releasing it during this interim period as we prepare to launch this series into 2022. Edna might be one of the most remarkable school leaders I've met in my time working as an ambassador for what school could be. Her philosophy of and vision for education is simple, direct, but absolutely breathtaking in its focus on student-centered learning. Anyway, I go on too long. Here again is my conversation with Dr. Edna Hussey, first released on September 27th, 2021. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film, Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Thank you, listeners. I continue to be amazed at the response to our first two seasons, which resulted in over 23,000 downloads in 61 countries. We are so grateful for your support. This third season, like the first two, will feature Hawaii's creative, imaginative, and innovative educators and education leaders focused on student-driven, real-world teaching and learning. My guest for this first episode of season three is Dr. Edna Hussey, a passionate and dedicated educator committed to the advancement of an educated citizenry, children's rights to quality learning, and the professionalism of teachers. Dr. Hussey is principal of Mid-Pacific Institute's preschool and elementary school. She was the former head of Epiphany School, which merged with Mid-Pacific in 2004. Mention Dr. Hussey's name anywhere in Hawaii and you will get mad respect and admiration. Dr. Hussey's educational experiences span a wide range of ages of learners from kindergarten through college and teaching professionals. She launched Hawaii's first Reggio Emilia-inspired preschool at Mid-Pacific in 2005. She and Leslie Glem coordinated the famed Reggio Emilia Wonder of Learning exhibit in 2013 and the North American Reggio Emilia Alliance Summer Conference. She earned her doctorate in education as a member of the first University of Hawaii at Manoa cohort in professional education practice. Recently, Dr. Hussey was recognized as Pacific Business News Women Who Mean Business honoree. The award recognizes outstanding women from public and private companies and nonprofits who have made a difference in their industries and communities. Mid-Pacific Institute's president, Dr. Paul Turnbull, wrote the following, and I quote, Dr. Hussey is a pillar of the education community, a person who has dedicated her professional life to children and to improving the quality of environments in which they learn and play. Faculty and staff are truly blessed to have such an accomplished and dedicated professional leading the preschool and elementary school program. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Edna Hussey. Edna, welcome to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Thanks for having me, Josh. So Edna, in December of 2020, last year, you wrote a column in the Honolulu Star Advertiser titled, Kiki Need Each Other to Grow and Develop. So I have two questions drawn from your op-ed. So question number one is, for those who don't know, describe the Reggio Emilia way of learning. All right. So it's really an approach to uh, learning and teaching. It comes from Reggio Emilia, which is located in northern Italy. And the approach um, evolved after World War II, when after fascism, the Italians decided that they would create a new approach to teaching and learning. They had come from a Catholic 
system, very restricted, very traditional. And they knew that in order to raise these children who had experienced war and any generations thereafter, there needed to be a new way of thinking about the world, about life. Uh, so Loris Malaguzzi, who's the founder of uh, Reggio Emilia, uh, worked with Piaget. Uh, he worked with uh, um, other theorists. And this this is what I, I find fascinating. He worked with mostly the mothers, the women of, of this little town um, in Italy. And together, they literally built the schools. They picked up all the rubble from the fallen buildings and uh, stacked the uh, mortar with the bricks and created physical spaces. But they also spent quite a bit of time looking at how children learn simply mm -hmm. that. But, you know, it's I, I say simply that, but so much goes into observing children and then as the professional, as the experts standing back and then interpreting what they have observed about children, because children, you know, at that age aren't doing uh, the metacognitive where they're being, uh, being able to step back and analyze their own learning. So teachers with their own experience and their understanding about pedagogy then look at the learning or whatever the children are creating and then explain the learning that's going on. Mm -hmm. So that started after World War II and Reggio Emilia is international. There's so many countries that have been using the approach or are just beginning to use the approach. Um, I might mention that through Kupoho Academy, our work there, we have uh, been doing some sessions with teachers in China. Now, China, we're uh, learning that the cultural differences hmm. make it difficult to just even understand this idea that parents are involved in their children's learning. Hmm. That's totally unheard of. So we have to get past some of those obstacles in order to get to the core of the learning, which is the children, mm -hmm. but you know they need parent support. So that's uh, that's what we've been doing with uh, Reg Emilia, mm. and as I said, it is worldwide, um, and there is a, an association called the North American Reggio Emilia Alliance, mm -hmm. and Reggio Children, which is housed in Italy. Mm -hmm. And we'll mention that Kupuho Academy is actually a professional development program that uh, comes out of Mid-Pacific Institute and is well over a decade old now um, and focuses uh, now on deeper learning, but um, sort of originally developed as a project-based learning, inquiry-based learning program that's available for public, private, and charter schools here in Hawaii. Um, yeah. So, um, Edna, in the op-ed you wrote, and I quote, in the early 20th century, Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name mm -hmm. right, theory yes. of cognitive development in young children, asserted that children thrive on interactions with others in situations where some help is needed from someone to nudge them through this zone of proximal development. Teachers Correct. teach but children learn even faster in the company of their peers. So my question mm -hmm. is, what is this zone of proximal development? And though it might seem obvious to our listeners, why do kids need to uh, learn faster in the company of others? So I think what Lev Vygotsky was referring to was there's a threshold. You know, when we're, we're doing whatever it is we're learning, there's a threshold. And then what we need to do is is cross that threshold in order to latch on to the idea. Um, it's like whenever you're learning something that's challenging, you're testing your limits, right? And when you know that you've gone beyond those limits, you actually have that idea in hand because you've attempted it. Mm. In, the, in the classroom, Children are natural nudgers, literally because they're elbow to elbow, face to face. Mm -hmm. But 
when a child is watching another child and they know they can only do so much, take a, uh, an example like a child building with blocks. And so they've been doing their own little construction. No blocks have been falling. They're not taking real risks, but they're watching that child across them. Mm-hmm. And that child is not just building flat, but the child is building up. Right. And when you build up with, with blocks, that is that requires higher order thinking. And so they're going to, you know, they'll challenge themselves then to build up. And that is what we mean by the zone of proximal development, going beyond the threshold mm. into uh, experiencing uh, and grasping onto the learning. Mm-hmm. And kids learning faster in the company of others? Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Uh, when when we walk into classrooms or we're observing um, children, the teacher can do all the talking they wish. And we have really great teachers, right, in every school. But there's nothing like the example right in front of them with a peer. Mm. Um, and think about yourself as an adult learner. You might be um, working on a project uh, with an instructor there, but when you step back and you're actually working with a colleague, mm. the learning multiplies. Uh, it's exponential in a way. So um, it's important to learn with others, which is what school provides, mm. that setting, that mm. place where you can be safe uh, with others to take risks. Mm. You're actually describing my childhood. I, I have five brothers and one sister, and uh, we grew up in, in Kahalu on the windward side. And wow, um, we all learned together, and we learned with each other. Um, and that, that was yes. actually the better kind of learning f- for me, absolutely, when I was growing up, rather than mm-hmm. school. So, so Edna, I'm gonna I'm gonna editorialize for a second based on the op-ed that you wrote, and. And ask you this, um, it seems like our American approach to education, at least in elementary school, may honor the idea of kids learning and growing with other kids. But through middle school and then high school, that concept seems to disappear in favor of a more competitive approach that emphasizes one's striving for the score, the grade, and or the rank. What are you thinking about, Edna, as your elementary school kids move on to middle and high school? Or maybe another way to ask it would be, what is your advocacy work with the middle and the high school at Mid-Pacific about your kids moving forward and the kind of learning that they'll, that they'll do as they go through those two, through middle school and high school? It's helpful to understand that at our elementary, and I'm including the years that I've spent here at Mid-Pacific, which is 18 years, and the seven years prior when I was at um, Epiphany School. During these 25 years, we have never given a child a grade or Mm. a number. And instead, we've we've used... uh, what we developed as a performance continua. And this continua uh, describes the criteria that we're looking for, but but with the notion that learning occurs over time. So it's not going to happen maybe in first grade, but we anticipate that uh, the learning will uh, deepen and grow come second grade or even third grade. So we we give children this grace to grow. Mm. Again, now remember all of this other uh, zone of proximal development is going on and, mm. and everything else that we do in the classroom. So that's sort of the culture here at the elementary. Mm-hmm. Now I have to say that my colleagues in the middle school have been watching what's going on. Our children in the fifth grade move into sixth grade and seventh and so forth. And one of the things that 
the principal has told me was, you know, Edna, uh, we can kind of tell <laughs> which kids, we, we, like, we can tell which kids are coming from the elementary. And I said, well, what's the, what are you looking for? And uh, they, they, uh, he says, you have the kids who, they always ask the questions. Mm-hmm. They persevere. They, they don't give up. They find alternative ways of approaching a problem they work well together now that those four things that i've just mentioned mm-hmm. has to do with deeper learning and so i think my colleagues are onto that and they have in their own way that is age appropriate and still trying to meet the demands you know for high school and beyond they're they are incorporating that in their own teaching approaches I, I believe they have made changes in the reporting system to parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, some changes have been made there to include um, a little bit of narrative, in fact. So mm. those are positive changes that help the students who are moving from our elementary mm. into middle school. And we hear back from the children, of course, in middle school, mm-hmm. and they're enjoying. They're enjoying uh, middle school life. There's tons of collaboration. There are many projects, which is what feeds their souls as learners. Mm. What a, what a marvelous idea that your elementary school kids are like little change agents moving up <laughs> into the middle school and and impacting how middle school happens at Mid Pacific. That that's a neat idea. That's a great, uh, 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 thank you very much for that. <laughs> a testament to your elementary school. So, <clears throat> Edna, your, from your resume, I learned that you were a writing assessment coordinator and researcher at the University of Hawaii uh, Manoa Writing Program from 1993 to 97. And you, yes. at the time, you were responsible for coordinating writing assessment projects in the university's uh-huh. writing intensive program, meeting with high school uh-huh. administrators to explain assessment efforts, planning and conducting workshops and research projects, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So this, this is going to be sort of a magic wand question and perhaps a 10,000-foot uh, level policy strategy slash leadership question. So what do our private, public, and charter schools need to do to graduate a high percentage of skilled writers and communicators? Like, what moves the needle towards that goal in your experience at this point? Okay, well, this is a big one. And so I'm I'm going to try to pull what comes to mind about some of the basics. The, the, the first, in order to, to graduate skilled writers, well, you need to have them write, period. Mm-hmm. And it's practice, practice, practice across all disciplines. So the view that many people have is that writing is polished, right? It goes through drafts and revisions. It gets a grade and all of that. But that's not writing. Writing is thinking. Josh, I don't know if when you do your work that not all of it is verbal. There are times that you do need to sit at your laptop or Mm -hmm. open up a journal and do some thinking. Well, that's because writing is thinking. And when I was working at the university, working with different profs from everyone from astronomy to zoology, my job was really to uh, help the professor, the instructor, understand that you do not only give two writing um, assignments. Mm -hmm. You need to give them multiple assignments because all of those different entries into a journal or short free writes, whatever it is, gets the students to thinking in the discipline. Mm. And, And in the discipline, there are specific criteria like there's uh, writing for nursing, there's writing for civil engineering. They all mm. they all do things differently, but there are forms that ex- are acceptable in each of those disciplines. But those are the final products only. Mm-hmm. That that does not attend to the thinking that goes on before you even get to that final product. Mm-hmm. So if we could give 
our students lots of practice. So I'll just start with elementary. Kids write every day, mm-hmm. right? They come into the classroom. They Many teachers have a few minutes where they ask the students to either take out their journals and to write about anything. It could be last night's dinner or writing into school with mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, that informal writing and then all the I'll I'll call it think writing that you do in a content area. So that's elementary. Well, why should that change in middle school and high Mm, school? Right. Why why should we not give uh, more developed thinkers and writers more opportunity to to think through in their writing whatever concept they're grappling with? Um, There's that. And... When, uh, when I have workshops, I always have people write first before they speak. You know, to get, I guess it depends on what kind of workshop it is, but often I'll ask them to write their thoughts first mm. before they speak because we find, I find that the thoughts are more developed, that uh, they have something important to say. And it, it provokes other people then to also contribute to discussion. Mm-hmm. But if we start with our first thoughts mm-hmm. in writing or drawing, mm-hmm. like we ask kids to draw, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if, if, if this practice were to continue through high school, oh gosh, I think of high school, the, the traditional view of high school is the didactic uh, mm-hmm. approach of the of a, of a lecturer, mm. you know, yeah. uh, c- classrooms work so much better when a teacher poses a question or uh, provides a provoking thought that students can write to and, mm. and then discuss. Yeah. Mm. I, I love the idea that, um, you know, for a school to really address the issue of writing, any school, Uh, public, private, or charter, one way to approach that is not to see the social studies classes as the only place where kids write, but that every subject area is where kids write, that they would write as a biologist or write as a mechanical engineer or, you know, as um, a musician that you would write. Um, Yes. And then the more you write, the, the more you write in those areas, the broader your range becomes as a writer. That's just a, that's a really... Neat idea, but I have a follow-up though related to the love of writing. So I've I've heard in other interviews, Edna, with educators and education leaders that the secret sauce to graduating skilled writers is guiding kids towards a love of writing. And I wonder what you think about this. Like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Like where does where does a love for writing come from? The the need to communicate. Mm-hmm. We uh we write because we have this need to communicate. That's why young children uh, are willing to pick up the tools, pencil, paper, but learn how to write. Um, the love of writing. So once we impose grades, once we impose evaluations on writing, then we're saying to children, um, mm. your thinking, you cannot make any errors in your thinking mm. because it's going to be graded. And boy, that's the best way mm. to squash any love of writing. It's the same thing for reading, Yeah. right? Once we impose too early this notion of, of evaluating something, then you take the love of anything away. Mm. It could be block building, you know, Lego, uh, painting, skating, whatever it might be. Uh, We stay with something and we love it because there's no one standing behind our back, Mm. you know, breathing down our our shoulders and uh, correcting us. Or judging us. Yeah. Yeah, or judging, right? So the difference... I see is with coaching, right? Mm. So when when you're coaching um, uh, a student with soccer, you allow that child to run and play, and then you step off to the side and you'll give the the 
soccer player some tips, some recommendations on how to place their foot or what angle they should be kicking the ball into the goal. Hmm. So that's different. There's there's not an evaluation going on. There is the sense of here, let me support you. Let me guide you, hmm. which is different from let me give you a grade on this. Hmm. Wow. So, and you just, I have chicken skin right now. I'm just thinking about my own experience as a kid in school. Oh, yeah. You know, and that I was constantly judged through these grades and that my love of writing actually came because of all of the writing that I did with my mother at home. And she never graded anything. It was just the process of, of writing. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the Entre Ed Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. I want to come at this literacy and writing question from a different angle, though. Um, Hawaii Parent Magazine is about to publish an article you wrote titled The Need for a New Literacy. And after reading it, I mean, wow, Edna, I've already shared that article with a number of people in my <laughs> network. Wow. Um, after reading it, I had a dozen questions for you, but I, I have to limit myself today to just two. So first, you ring a very, very clear warning bell about the impact of earlier is better, quote unquote, approach mm -hmm. to literacy. So what do you mean by this? What is your concern and, and why? Well, if we look at the developmental growth of children and their cognitive abilities and, and take a look at what earlier is better means. So earlier it is better looks like this, right? We have children who at age two are listening to tapes, learning their alphabets or it's providing young children those workbooks that you find at the supermarket, right? And you tell your child to complete a number of sheets in, in the workbook. But we're doing that so much earlier when children have not yet made the connection about the symbols the numerals, the alphabets, mm. and what that means, what that represents. Mm. They're not there yet. And, and gosh, there, there are tons of studies, none of which I can quote right now, but they've been done by many uh, countries. I think of uh, New Zealand, for example, which is a high literacy mm -hmm. uh, rate. They don't even have their children begin to read until age seven. Mm. Seven. And uh, we do that much earlier here in the United States. So there's something to be said about providing children the tools when they are developmentally ready. Otherwise, as research has shown, when too early it backfires when a child is entering second grade, for example, mm. or third grade. There are those studies already mm. where that child has reached his or her limit, and it flattens their uh, uh, trajectory to improvement stalemates mm -hmm. for a long time. So why are we doing that to children when it's really not natural mm -hmm. to, to give them a workbook or to have them 
make that one-to-one correspondence. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's unnatural. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that any love of literacy is plateauing at the same time as well, right? Um, Absolutely. So, so in your article, you articulate a vision for a new literacy that you call, quote-unquote, reading the world. And I confess, and my geeky education heart soared when I read this. So <laughs> please explain what you mean by reading the world and what parents and teachers can do to help coach kids to read the world. Sure. So I, I want to attribute that phrase to the director of the Minot Writing Program at the time, hmm. Tom Hilgers. So if Tom happens to hear this, I want you, Tom to know that uh, he when, when he used that in his own presentations, it just stuck with me. And that's 20-some-odd hmm. years ago. Now, what I've come to understand now using that phrase is what we're what we're experiencing now as um, a citizenry, and it doesn't matter what country, but let's call ourselves citizens. And what we're finding is that teaching children to read and write isn't enough because we have scores mm-hmm. of millions of children who have graduated already, and they're citizens. Mm-hmm. But when we look at what's going on in the world in the past 10 years, our citizens have not been making informed decisions. They have not been open to seeing different perspectives. They're not understanding how to read each other's behavior in social situations. Mm-hmm. And so they jump to conclusions and often uh, very damaging um, conclusions. So the reading the world has to do with going beyond teaching children to read letter for letter, number Mm -hmm. for number. They have to learn how to read each other. Mm -hmm. The social, emotional situations every single person is involved in every single human being. And that is the text. Uh, You've got the written text, but the text is always the person in front of you. How do you read their facial expressions? And now it's so much harder to read a facial expression when you're just trying to figure out what the alphabet of the eye is, right? What does the upturned eyebrow? So all of that is so important um, into moving ourselves past any obstacles. Um, so it, it, it's even observations. How many of us really take time to observe, not just people, but observe the immediate spaces that we're in? Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember what I was reading, but there is a, a an approach to walking with intent, right? Taking a look at all of the the, the, how the leaves move, uh, what direction the sunlight is coming in. All of that is part of our literate environment mm. and how we need to view the world. But more, more so, raising children and having them understand or having ourselves understand that beyond reading and writing, which we can always get, Mm-hmm. It's how do we develop individuals who are empathic? Mm-hmm. The world is devoid, you know, of of populations of people who understand, who strive to listen. Oh, just listening is another skill. Um, you and I are t- carefully listening to each other right now right. In, in this podcast, mm-hmm. but we're in situations every single day where we're talking with people. So this is what I mean by uh, not just reading the word, but reading the world. Right, right. That's that's awesome. And what really jumped out also from your um, article, which is about to be published, is the idea that the more that we immerse kids in, in experiential learning, in making and designing and doing and building and, and observing and creating, um, the more they develop those reading the world skills. Um, and they do that in collaboration, as we talked about earlier, with other children as well. Um, 
one of the Reggio principles here is that you have the t uh, parent as the primary teacher, right? And you've, then you've got the classroom teacher, but the environment is the third teacher. Mm. So then we talk about the environment of the classroom, but the environment uh, outside the classroom um, as another teacher that you you need to interact with and be able to read. Mm. Right? right, right. That's awesome. So, hey, everyone, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Dr. Edna Hussey is the principal of the elementary school at Mid-Pacific Institute, responsible for oversight of curriculum, instruction, and assessments of students and professional learning for faculty and staff. So, Edna, I want to shift gears a little bit to focus on your faculty at your elementary school. Um, at your elementary school website, I read, and I quote, the MPI elementary faculty consists of caring and knowledgeable teachers, many of whom are considered educational leaders among Hawaii teachers. More than half the faculty have master's degrees, many have academic specialization and professional credentials in curricular areas, early childhood and elementary education. Mid-Pacific elementary teachers have a gift and enthusiasm for teaching, have a keen understanding of learning and how their students learn they embrace the innovations and challenges of a progressive curriculum and supporting technology and respect their students as individual learners. So there's a lot to unpack here, but let's start with this question. One of your colleagues shared with me that you have a high degree of confidence in all of your faculty. I think you have 25 faculty in your elementary school or? Uh, yeah, almost 30, 30, 30 of them. So you have a high degree of confidence in all of your faculty vis-a-vis -vis the description I just read. So to what extent, Edna, is your confidence a product of intentional and strategic hiring? Or to what extent are your faculty on the same page because of your coaching and guiding and mentoring? do the hiring using all the criteria that you know who we're looking for mm -hmm. when I do the hiring I I regard that person who has been hired as coming to me coming to mid-pacific already rich with experience just in the same way we view every single learner who comes into our classroom, mm. right? We, we regard that learner as you come to us with a rich history, mm. with expertise, and we, we go off from there. We take the journey together there. That's the same view I have of every single teacher. Mm. Um, they're diverse, that's for sure. Um, they have come from many different backgrounds, but day one... They begin on equal footing with me. It's not about trying to prove anything. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, we just kind of go along. I one of the things I was thinking about was when I was a teacher. You know those lesson plan books? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I had a principal, my first principal, um, good-hearted woman, but stringent in many ways, required all the faculty to turn in their lesson plans. Mm -hmm. And so I spent my weekends writing these long, detailed lesson plans every Sunday. My mother used to do the same thing. I don't know if I picked that up from her, but every Sunday. And then when I stepped into the classroom come Monday morning, the whole lesson plan for the week I couldn't use anymore because the students weren't there or it took a turn, right? Whatever I had planned took a turn because of some question that came up in the classroom or something that came up in the news that I, I really needed to attend to. So then I decided when I would become an, an administrator mm. that no one would turn in a lesson plan book. Mm. And they were shocked by that. You don't need to see my lessons I said, I, I need to know that you have a plan. And so we talk about that. 
but I don't want your day to day because I can guarantee you what you wrote yesterday won't work tomorrow. Right. So that's right. kind of how how it is. So that's mm. that to me is an expression of my confidence in every single teacher. And mm. um, mm. and it sounds like your approach as a as a person hiring teachers is that you're hiring learners first and foremost. And, oh, thank you for saying that, Josh. <laughs> that 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 whole notion of seeing ourselves as learners is like so critical, mm. especially for teachers. Teachers should never feel like, oh, I know it, I, I, I've done that and there's no more to learn. Because mm. if that's the attitude, they don't have a place in teaching. Mm -hmm. They have to be the best models of learning for their own students. Mm. Yeah, and and what a, what a thing that is when you're hired as a learner um, and you already know that your journey is going to be different every single day because you learn every single day with your kids. And and sometimes, Edna, my heart hurts for schools and districts who don't, you know, who don't have the luxury of that kind of hiring, that they're so pressed to have adults covering kids that they can't hire learners. They just have to hire whoever's in front of them if they're if they're qualified, right? And then it, that's that's hard. And I feel terrible. For those kinds of situations, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it seems simple, doesn't it? That yeah. if every principal could hire someone who is a natural learner, that all of our problems in education could be solved. Uh, yeah, I hesitate for a moment there because I also know that education is an entire system. And even though here at the elementary, we are part of a larger system as principal here with my 30 teachers and my 302 kids, it's still a system in and of itself. And yeah. I need to be thinking all the time about how one factor affects the other. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, what's really neat about this whole thing, Edna, is that you really got me thinking about something that I was very interested in as a child, which is I, I was, for some reason, I became a, um, a devotee, a lover of all things Michelangelo. Um, and there is this apocryphal story about Michelangelo, the sculptor, um, that he wasn't just chiseling marble, he was yes. re releasing mm -hmm. people from the block. And, mm -hmm. I, and, and as I was working on, on today's interview, I started thinking of you, um, uh, you know, to what extent as a leader, that you shape your faculty and to what extent are you just releasing what's already in the marble already with the system that you have put in place. It was a, it was a pretty uh -huh. neat, neat idea. Uh -huh. Well, I'm sort of stuck with your, the phrase they're releasing from the block only because in a moment, I, I remember the image of Michael, um, Michelangelo's um, David mm -hmm. in, in Italy, boy, it, he definitely released the, the, the spirit of mankind in that um, sculpture. But um, I, I like to think that it's both. Mm -hmm. It's a yes and, uh, because I still need to do my my thing as a principal, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So, and, <laughs> you know, still have to do that. Yeah. And, and yes, so I tr we work on balancing what the teachers are really great at in their definitely innovative and creative. And then I, I just need to work beside that great idea mm. and make sure that it 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 speaks to the philosophy of the school mm. and that it, it's good for not just a few kids, but it's good for everybody. So um, it, it's a yes and. Right. So I want to come at this idea of faculty development from another angle. Um, you wrote the following in that op-ed I mentioned from last December. Um, and I quote, an astute teacher steps back to provide opportunities throughout the day for peers to model behaviors while creating an environment that supports resilience, self-reliance, and independence through trial and error for learning beyond the impasse for persevering. So I'm super curious, Edna, about your use of the, of the adjective astute. 
there are there are many <laughs> other adjectives you could have used. <laughs> so wh- why astute, and why do you so clearly value astute educators and the astuteness of stepping back? Well, okay. Why the word astute? Well, when I think of the word astute, I think of not someone who is learned as in academic learning, but astute for me has to do with one who has learned through experience. And and it doesn't even need to be years of experience because I can think of astute teachers who have had maybe five years of experience. Mm -hmm. An astute teacher is one who sees to the core of the child, who really understands the child's, uh, all the filters, right, that the mm. child comes comes to school with, background, uh, learning skills, all of that, and can, in a, in a moment's decision-making, figure out, I need to let that child go ahead with whatever action they're taking. Or I need to bring in another child into the mix because this child needs to talk it through or needs the the mm-hmm. nudging from uh, a peer. So it's allowing your experience and your gut to help guide that decision-making um, in the classroom. Um, mm-hmm. that, that now that... All of us have, right? Mm-hmm. That helps us to decide this is the right thing to do. So astuteness comes from that one-to-one connection that you have with your experience, your feelings, all interfacing at, at the same time that creates probably a good decision um, at the moment mm-hmm. rather than one that's an error. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, Edna, about... You know, I'm I'm working, I'm facilitating slash teaching a leadership course right now for public, private, and charter of vice principals that'll run through this 2021-2022 school year. And thinking that if they were listening, that one of the takeaways from this would be, and circling back to something that you said earlier about your hiring practices, that what a different thing it is if you're hiring learners and you're also looking for astute. <laughs> like, yeah. how, how do you find astute in somebody's portfolio that they're presenting to you, right? I mean, like- You don't. You don't to you. <laughs> you don't. Yeah, it's funny because um, you don't know. I mean, so much of that moment of hiring is trust. You yeah. have to trust who you're saying you belong here at our school. This, like, I see that you're a good fit, but you, you never really know until the first few months. It's not even weeks. It's give the, give the teacher a few months because that transition is difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you think about transition for children, oh gosh, it's harder. I think even for, um, adults to make transitions into new mm-hmm. communities, mm-hmm. forming, yeah, right. So becoming part of that community, that social level is one thing. And then calling forward your expertise as a teacher is another level. There's so many, and you, you, you can't make any judgments of an individual you've hired mm. until you see them in action. Right, right. And I can imagine if I'm sitting in front of you and and we're having our interview and I'm potentially going to be hired at Mid-Pacific, that one of the things that I'm thinking about in this moment is, well, I'm not exactly sure what astute means, but you're hiring me as a learner, so I'm going to learn what that means. (laughs) You know, I'm going to figure out how to read the room, to read the world, and to learn what it means to step back in certain situations. Mm -hmm. You put that well together. Josh, <laughs> the, the reading the word and reading the world idea. Yeah, yes, that's awesome. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Dr. Edna Hussey. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. 
I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. As a What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast listener, I know you're curious about what's happening in Hawaii schools. This is Christy Oda, and together with National Board Certified Teachers, we launched Educators Edge, a new podcast that gathers innovative educators with diverse perspectives to collaborate around a topic of their choice. There's something so special about hearing teachers talk story about the work they do to transform education for Hawaii's young learners. I invite you to listen on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Anchor, or go to bit.ly slash educators edge to subscribe. Aloha and mahalo. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Dr. Edna Hussey, the elementary school principal at Mid-Pacific Institute on the island of Oahu. Um, So Edna, you have what's called a principal's blog, which you use to keep your community informed and as a platform to share your thinking. Um, On September 11th of this year, you published a blog titled, This is Deeper Learning, from which I want to ask a a couple of brief questions. Um, In your blog, you referenced your teacher's blogs, which prompts me to ask, given all the things educators and education leaders pack into their days, why spend time on blogging? Oh, I have to chuckle because 25 years ago when I thought of this, I was inspired actually by an administrator, um, local administrator. What she would do was write letters to the parents. I, and I think it, it might have been once a week. And I thought, wow. You can write these letters on top of everything else. And, and she's, she was sharing like little tidbits about school life and teachers and students. And I valued them. And I just thought, gosh, you know, when I am, if I ever get to be an administrator, one of the things I'm going to do is write these blogs, which I have mm. been doing since uh, 2000, <laughs> 2000, maybe. Anyway. Wow. And because I could see the benefit for me, I thought, what if I had the teachers write blogs? Mm -hmm. And the reason is this. Teachers are powerful, right? Parents listen to the teachers. But so much of what goes on in the classroom is not visible. I mean, mean, we could put uh, video cameras, you know, that kind of stuff. But so much of the teacher's thinking Mm -hmm. is not made visible. And so the blogs are a way for teachers not to just tell, but to explain whatever they're doing in the classroom. So for teachers who are much more comfortable with this idea now, and I I could take any teacher and look at their archives and see their growth and development as as thinkers, as learners, as Mm -hmm. teachers, because they're taking many more risks now in their blogs to explain what they understand is really the learning. It's, it's not, they're not giving you the textbook kind of explanation, but they're really looking at student work and they're using their expertise as teachers to explain what they value about whatever it is that they're writing about in their blogs. So it becomes a record of their mm. own growth and, and, and development. Mm. It's uh, public. So teachers often balked at the idea because you mean I have to share this mm. with like my classroom parents? And I said, why not? Why not share it with them? And, and by the way, you are, you're not only sharing with them, um, your blogs are universal. And we have had people who write to some of my teachers from, I don't know, someplace Sweden or New mm, Zealand or mm-hmm. Japan, and they'll say, I learned this from you. Mm. And I, I tell the teachers, see, you know, this is how powerful mm. your writing about your thinking and understanding is for a community out mm. there. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I, I will say that um, the teachers do dread <laughs> writing the blogs because it does require you to th- sit and think, right? Mm-hmm. It's that going back to writing is thinking. Yeah. But I, I think they can see the, the wisdom, wisdom behind um, having to write these blogs as mm. their own record of mm. growth. Mm. That's that's really neat that you frame it like as an investment in time and that the investment really does pay off in a lot of different ways that are not obvious when you first start doing it, including connecting with people around the world yes, um, who yes. are working on similar things or practicing um, similar things in education. So my, my second question related to this actually has to do with trust. Um, because in this leadership course that I'm facilitating right now, we're asking our vice principals to blog, and some of that blogging is going to be focused on a project that they have to do over the course of the year, but it's also just that their school communities would get to know them. But we're also asking them, Edna, to do it in collaboration with their principal, not just to do it alone. And I, I think my question is around how you build trust with your faculty so that you don't feel the need and and maybe you wouldn't have any way to vet anything that they put out there like how does that happen over the course of time and you have faculty who come in and out and you know so on and so forth can can i just put a little caveat there about vetting so because it is a public document i do care about how it is read just grammatically (laughs) Uh, so so there is I do read every single blog and I I edit. And then if I have a question about something, I mean, so it's posted, all published. But after every single blog that I review, I always send an email back to the teacher and I give them some feedback hmm. or I'll ask them a question about something they had done in class. And I just post it as a question. And then sometimes they'll, they'll, uh, respond to me in another email or, or they'll say, and you, can you come see this in my classroom? So it's really an invitation. Um, mm-hmm. That's, that's how I see it. So. Um, so building trust with your faculty is part is that's part of the process with them. Absolutely. I, I, um, I have to, yeah, it's, I have to trust that they know what they're doing. And I do because their teachers here. Um, But I also trust that in any of what might be missteps, because we always make missteps um, Mm -hmm. day to day, that even in those missteps, they can recoup. They can step back and and say, uh, I didn't do this that well, or I didn't write about this that well, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. but I I can improve on it. Mm. Which is the reason I give them the feedback mm-hmm. um, to what to their blogs. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Josh, it, the simple thing is everything that we do needs to be based on trust. Mm. But, but trust trust doesn't come just like packaged with a bow. Yeah. It it's a working through relationships. It um that's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and much in the way that an editor of a magazine builds trust with his or her journalists, you are doing that as well. You you act in a professional capacity with them. On the one hand, you've got their backs because they're publishing, you know, publicly and you're there and to support them, but on the other hand, you're helping to shape their writing and to make sure that what's getting put out there um, is really the public face of the school. So that's it. I just love that idea. And as we go forward in this leadership course that I'm facilitating, um, we're actually employing a leader, a, a blogging coach. She's a longtime public school principal who blogged. Her name is Jan Iwase. Um, and uh, she was blogging since back in 2012. And so I just, I love that idea that that's, that the, that the end product of all of that work is a building of trust with your faculty. Um, Absolutely, which yes, is, which yes. is wonderful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, Edna, we're we're coming down to the end here. Oh, uh, there are so many things uh, that I wanted to ask you about, but I want to close with this. Um, 
Last November, uh, I released my second documentary film titled The Innovation Playlist, which is an outgrowth of Ted Dintersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed, in his book, What School Could Be. And one of the playlists that I featured is called Portrait of a Graduate. And that section is the f- in the film shows how Molokai High School built a movement, if you will, around the concept that the entire Molokai community deserve to have input on what constitutes a Molokai graduate. So as I as I prepped for this interview today with you, I watched a two-minute talk you gave, uh, which was on Mid-Pacific's YouTube channel, about a small but, at least to me, a wondrous tweak you and your faculty carried out related to what you call your learner profile. Um, and that tweak was to change the language of the profile for the elementary school from adult-speak mm-hmm. to kid-speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so why and what impact did this seemingly small change have on your elementary community? In other words, from what deeper place did that tweak, that change come from? What was what was the problem that your team set out to solve related to this learner profile? Well, the learner profile is used is supposed to be used by the children to help them determine what parts of their learning they can select that meets one of the traits from the learner profile because it then goes into their uh, digital portfolio. And if they don't understand what the criteria is, then they can't do the rest of the work, right? It's not meaningful work. So we're working with children. We, We decided to view the learner profile from their perspective Mm. using language that's used daily in the classroom so then they can make the connections. Oh yeah, this is what it means to reflect on my own growth because, you know, we write reflections at the end of class or whatever it might be. Uh, It, it, it's, it seemed like a a no brainer for us to do when we're working with uh, uh, children to allow the criteria to speak directly to them. So it's, usable and meaningful for their own learning. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really jumped out at me that, um, well, let, let me put it this way. A couple of years ago, I, I found in a box all of my grade reports and comments from my time when I was at Punahou School in middle school and high school. Um, and I realized there was, I had a real epiphany in that moment that this was a conversation happening between adults and that I had no part in it. Um, yes. And what you've done here is you've said, wait, the kids are supposed to be at the center of this process. That's right. So let's change mm-hmm. the language of the learner profile so that it's their language, so they can exactly. be a part of it. Uh-huh. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes, yes. And so what was the process that you and your faculty used, like literally the nitty gritty, <laughs> to design and build your elementary school learner profile? Over many meetings, I allowed the teachers to take the perspective of the child in their classroom. So it was kindergarten through fifth grade mm. and to uh, craft language that they knew the kids would understand. So we went through several iterations of it, uh, threw them up on, took one profile trait one by one. Wow. And we just went through editing. Uh, and, and then we thought that, how would my student in the third grade understand this? What selections might they make? So, so we, we kind of thought it all the way through. Um, and so we've been using this learner profile now for uh, two, three years. We, we, we made a revision. We, we changed it. Oh, the first uh, iteration of it was... Um, were these verbs. And we thought, oh, verbs are good, right? They're active, but <laughs> right. it didn't work with the kids. Yeah. So then we changed it around to something much more concrete. And the students have been able to better select uh, items, but the teachers can now sit. Like I, I, I've seen the kindergarten teachers take one profile trait and they kind of talk about it a lot. And they ask the kids now, what can you pull from your work that shows that you have a growth mm. mindset? And they're not talking only about math. They're not only talking about uh, writing. They're looking across all the content areas. So it could be PE. Mm. It could be character ed. Any one of those classes would show that you have a growth mindset. Wow. So wow. that's 
what we've been doing with it. That's just such a, a wonderful way to bring this episode to a close that, in effect, what you're talking about here is that the child, um, as he or she moves up through the middle school and on into high school and graduates, is the owner of the learner profile. Um, and that it's it's their construction, it's their design, it's their development as they go forward. Um, and they could look at that and go, yep, I'm all of those, which is wonderful. That's just a, that's a really wonderful idea. Edna. Oh, thank you, Josh. Thank yeah. you. So Dr. Edna Hussey, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, I appreciate all that you're doing at Mid-Pacific um, Elementary School and also um, really appreciate um, getting to know you over the years through your work with Dr. Mark Hines and Kupuho Academy as you have helped so many teachers across the state and education leaders um, understand really what school could be. So I appreciate you and I appreciate this time today. Thank you, Josh. And might I also add um, to the conclusion of this podcast, the great work that you are doing in your own way through these podcasts, through your writing, through the different uh, public venues that you have provided, that you have been a phenomenal mouthpiece for what schools can be. Thank you, Edna. I appreciate that. Stay safe, and uh, I hope that you have a great rest of your day. You too. Aloha. Aloha. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the other major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is funded by Education Change Agent Ted Dentersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.